This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation, the first one of 2021. Thank you for being with us. This show is, in my view, upfront, up close, and uplifting. Michael Pinball Clemens is a game changer, both on and off the field. Years ago, he earned the reputation as an electrifying pro football player, and today, as proud GM of the Toronto Argonauts, enthusiastic leader of the Pinball Clemens Foundation, and devoted family man, Pinball Clemens is one of the most positive people on the planet, and we need his positivity now more than ever. Michael Pinball Clemens joins us in conversation. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much, Anne. So excited to be here with you. Uh, you. You are iconic in our home. Well, and you are in our world, let me tell you. Everyone knows Pinball Clemens. Everyone loves Pinball Clemens. And we depend on your positivity. So what do you say to people during this pandemic when they turn to you for inspiration? Well, you know, for, for me, I'm no authority, right? But, but for me, one of the real key things is to over-communicate at this time, right? If, if you used to talk to someone once a year, not, now, now you should talk to them three times a year. If, if there's someone you talk to once a week, yeah, a couple of times a week, over-communicating. And, and, and don't try to do this alone. The harshest form of punishment in our society is solitary confinement. And that is because if you're alone long enough, you go crazy, right? We need each other. We, we need to understand that. So for me, those two foundational prim- principles uh, that actually blend in with each other, over-communicate and don't try to do it alone. And you are not alone. In your home right now, you've got your entire family, your beautiful wife, Diane, your children, Rachel, Raven, and Riley. That seems like you're outnumbered by gorgeous women, intelligent women, hardworking women, but it must be so wonderful to have their love and their support through these tough times. Well, you know, this has been an extremely challenging time. There's there's no question about it. I wouldn't have designed it this way. However, um, having the opportunity to spend this time, so much time with my family, that part of it has been extraordinary. The challenges around it um, certainly are immense. Uh, but the opportunity to be at home with my girls um, is has been one of those small small pleasures in this, right? It, it's important as well to make sure that we find some of the nuggets in this because um, everything isn't bad, right? And uh, you know, so so we we have to hold on to those things that are positive. You were raised by a single mother. What values did she instill in you, and did she? shape how you felt and feel about women today? Uh, You know, uh, my mom still shapes my thought process Mm -hmm. uh, because there are things that, like, when when stuff happens in life, the the real challenge in life is not that stuff happens because stuff is going to happen. It's how we respond to it. And and so there's a little bit of when something happens, she's still in my head, right? She's still there, and, and uh, we talk all the time still. And, and uh, so uh, so she's just this amazing impact. And so we say in what way um, 
it's not what way, it's every way. She molded me and shaped me uh, to be people first. That was the one thing that she was a single parent, but she was always going to take, you know, elderly people in the community for groceries. And, and still today, she goes and visits um, her, her classmates who, who might be in, in uh, uh, independent care. Uh, they, every, every Wednesday, I think, they go and visit them. She still is the, the bookkeeper at church, and so she stays active and stays involved. And, and really, it is that people-first uh, philosophy. Love says you before me. Hmm. That's the ability to put someone else's interest before your own, and that's the major thing that she taught me. And, you know, the Pinball Clemens Foundation seems to be an extension of what your mother has instilled in you and continues to. I believe your vision is to, through education, bring youth from the margins to the mainstream in the Pinball Clemens Foundation. Uh, it is, and, and that is uh, certainly her. She was so, uh, education was so fundamentally important. I was a, you know, a good athlete, and, you know, I, I had my jersey retired when I was only 11 years old mm-hmm. or something like that, but but I could always run, but she stressed academics. If I ever got a C, I couldn't play sports, and I tell my kids that a C isn't this thing that you call a C today. A C was a 75 to an 84, so all my marks had to be 85 and above, and, and she didn't say that because she was strict. She said that because she believed in me. And, uh, and so uh, fundamentally, um, you know, I went to a, uh, an Ivy-like school, the College of William and Mary, the second oldest school behind Harvard, and, and graduated in economics. And that was all her. Uh, had nothing to do with me. It was her drive, her focus. And uh, so what we try to do is take young people, not, not just through um, traditional education, but also post-secondary training uh, to jobs. So we have young people uh, who are going through in uh, trades programs, who are going to a job within 12 weeks, in, in um, tech programs who are going to a job in 15 weeks. And, and uh, we have a new admin program now that will be doing a similar thing. And then we have the traditional college and university stream where, where young people, are, we're, we're sponsored, we're scholar, uh, have uh, I think 40-some young people on scholarship right now. Uh, we believe next September that will increase to um, a, a, a number that is around between 75 and to, to 100, uh, but we also have some neat programs that are that are taking place with both indigenous and black youth uh, that are also leading leading to jobs. So from the margins to mainstream means from community to career, not not just a job, but gainfully, sustainably employed in careers they desire. Very well put. I want to discuss with you your relationship with the Toronto Argonauts. You were one of the best-known players uh, with so many accolades. You kind of wove in and out. So as a player, then you uh, returned uh, to be the president, and then you were head coach and CEO of the Argos, and now you're the general manager. So what's it like to make the move from the field to the front office? Uh, you know, that, that transition initially happened, you know, uh, about 20 years ago. And um, so transitioning, you know, uh, uh, from the field to the front office and, and, and has been revisited again. And there's a freshness to it this time around. And I had been with the team for so long, so I was um, – 
uh, went from playing to coaching uh, in the same season and then, you know, went from coaching to being uh, the president of the team and all that happened together. And, and then I went out and had a chance to kind of um, experience the world a little bit, you know, develop the foundation and put the met those things, building blocks in space. And so, um, so coming back this time has, has been refreshing because it's everything is new again. And so, so we're really excited about it and excited about the opportunity to bring winning football uh, back to the organization. Uh, just won the, the Great Cup in 2017, but we've had some challenges since then, and, uh, including a pandemic. Uh, so uh, we're excited about putting an exciting product on the field. Not only that, though, we're excited about the, the impact that we can make in community. So as soon as we can, we will be back out in schools and doing different things that support our greater community as well. I want to review some of your amazing stats, and and correct me if I'm wrong on some fronts, but CFL's outstanding player in 1990, three-time Grey Cup champ, 91, 96, 97, two-time CFL All-Star. This is you, by the way, Michael, 90 and 97, <laughs> and the only player to gain 1,000 yards in three separate categories in a single season in 1997. So... You look back at that, what did you learn through your entire experience as one of the best players in CFL history that brings you to the man you are today? Well, um, I I ran for more yards than any player in pro football history as well, and and was the only player to have 5,000 yards in four different categories over the course of a career. And the reason I added those is to say that they really don't mean anything because I couldn't have done any of that by myself. Uh, what I've learned most about this is is that I'm no good alone, right? Uh, at 5'5 five, five and 165 pounds, I would have literally been obliterated if it wouldn't have been for those guys who are blocking and, and uh, doing the real hard work. We call them the offensive linemen up there, and they're the ones who are really protecting me and enabling me uh, to do the things that I did. Um, I, I, uh, I say now from a leadership uh, perspective. If, if you're the smartest guy in the room, it's your own fault, right? <laughs> it's our job to put excellence around us. And so uh, what I have learned is the concept of team and, and how if you um, play together in an effective team, right, that, that it can have tremendous outcomes. And it can make your resume sound really good, uh, but the, the reality is, is, is I, was, I was one of 12, uh, and to a greater extent, you know, one of 42 guys on the entire team, right? So one of 12 out on the field at, at a time. And, and uh, through, that, uh, through that shared experience and what everybody was doing, uh, the unfortunate part is that they put all the names beside one guy, right? All the yards, I should say, uh, by, by one guy. The reality is about by every record, every guy that was on the field should be um, written alongside of me. Wow. A team player uh, to the nth degree. Well, if anyone can get uh, the Argos back on the field and the fans back in the stands, it's you, Michael Pinball Clemens. By the way, your mom must be so proud of you. <laughs> Uh, not not nearly as proud as I am of her. Oh, yes, and I wonderful. tell her that all the time. Oh, yeah. and you've just told her again. So thank you yeah. so much for joining us in conversation. Uh, always a pleasure. And to everybody, a happy 2021. And, uh, and let's make the best of it. Regardless of what happens, let's make the best of it. And if you'll join me, could we do this together? Argo. Uh, Argo.
news. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Uh, real pleasure, Anne. Thank you so very much for having me. And very best to you throughout the new year. And you as well and your lovely family. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, bye for now. Coming up, hometown hockey hero Daryl Sittler. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. Daryl Sittler. In 1976, he set an NHL record for the most points in a single game. That record still stands. Daryl Sittler has 10 points. That's a new record. As long as he lives, he'll remember this evening. So will all of us doing the game here at Maple Leaf Garden. That helped Sittler become the first leap ever to reach 100 points in a single season. It's still 1976, and Daryl Sittler racks up five goals in a single game in the Stanley Cup playoffs, tying a playoff record. The 76 Canada Cup final, and yes, he scores the winning goal. 1976 was a very good year for Daryl Sittler, but there was much more to come, and there still is. The Leafs legend joins us now in conversation. Welcome, Daryl Sittler. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Well, better for speaking with you. Thank you so much. So let's go back. Uh, let's go back a little in time. You were the Leafs' first pick in the 1970 NHL entry draft. That was amazing. But tell me how it felt to score your first NHL goal in 1970 against Detroit. What was that like? Well, a couple things. First of all, when we were drafted, uh, when I was drafted, we were 20 years old. So now they draft you when you're 18. So I finished junior hockey in London. And uh, how I found out I was drafted, I was working in the summertime on a cement truck and I heard it on the radio. So totally different from now. Every now Nowadays, it's all a, a big production and uh, your household name basically before you even get drafted. But my first goal, I was back in the 70s, a lot of players uh, in their first year were sent to the minors. So you usually spend a stint in the minors. I was fortunate that the Leafs kept me up. I played left wing instead of center. And it took me till uh, almost the end of November to score my first goal. And I remember it vividly. I have the puck on a plaque here. But the goal that I scored was the first goal, uh, uh, Smokey McLeod, the goalie for Detroit Red Wing, uh, let in. So I got the puck. He didn't get it. And uh, I'll always remember it. Every player remembers their first goal and how they got it. What did you hear in the stands at that point when you scored that goal? I don't know if I was even listening. I wanted to make sure I retrieved the puck. So I basically, uh, as a... As a uh, excited rookie, I, I went right into the back of the net and got it. Usually, the referee pulls it out and gives it to the to the trainer or something like that. But I didn't want to. I wanted to make sure I got it. So yeah, I didn't hear the crowd much, but it was it was great to do it and great to do it. And obviously, in a neat uniform for sure. Still in the seventies, we're thinking nineteen seventy four at this point. You took over for Davy Keon as captain of the Leafs, second youngest in the league. How important was that move for you? Well, I was fortunate, again, coming into the LEAP organization in 1970, a number of those players were on the uh, Stanley Cup team in 67. George Armstrong was still playing, Dave Keon, Paul Henderson was on the team, uh, Ronnie Ellis. So I had lots of leadership and direction uh, and, and saw how these guys uh, you know, were pros and how they presented themselves each day, uh, not only in practice, but in uh, the games and then in the community. So 
So it was great to be honored and honored to be named captain in 74. I always uh, knew and respected what that meant to be, and uh, it was a day I'll always remember. And, you know, there were some great captains before me and great captains after me, but I took it very seriously. There were some tumultuous times with Harold Ballard and Punch Imlach. I know Alvin Eagleson was representing you at that point. You apparently, and legend has it, that you took some scissors and cut the C out of your sweater before a game in protest. Can you elaborate on that? Well, it's a bit of a long story, but basically I'd been with the Leafs. Uh, Punch Imlach uh, came in as the new general manager, and Punch came from Buffalo, but he was a man of the attitude that he didn't re- really respect the union, and uh, and he was a kind of a militant army sergeant type of uh, leader. Um, and I was the captain of the team, had a no trade contract, a popular teammate. I was the vice president of the players' union, and basically, Punch Imlach came to me and he said, "Daryl, captains of my team have always been management." He suggested I'd step down as a, a member of the uh, vice president of the players' union. He suggested I should get rid of my agent, Alan Eagleson, because he and Eagleson didn't seem to eye to eye. He banned me from going on Hockey Night in Canada, any interviews between periods. All sorts of things were going on behind the scenes. Stop Palmateer and I from participating in showdown. He was going to sue us. So when it came to uh, a lot of things going on, um, uh, they had traded Lanny McDonald. I remember saying to myself uh, the morning of that game that I took the sea off is, what am I here for? I'm here to play hockey. Punch has no respect for me as a as a person, as a captain. Uh, I'm dealing with all this stuff off the ice, which is, you know, obviously it was meaningful to the media and everybody else. But, but to me, I broke it down to say, hey, what's my job here? My job's to play hockey. That's what I love doing. That's what I'm paid to do. So uh, that's why I removed the seat from my jersey. Huh. I didn't rip it off. I took it off with a lot of respect that I had the trainer actually uh, take it up, take it off for me. It wasn't It wasn't one of those things that I did. As a spoiled little kid, I did it with a lot of emotion. Um, it wasn't easy to do. Uh, one of the things that I'll always remember is that they offered the C after I took it off to other players on the team, but they said, no, Daryl's our captain. We don't need a, a C on uh, He doesn't need a C on our jersey to be the captain. So to me, that was all I needed from, from anybody, which was a, a great honor for those guys to do that for me, guys like Boria, Tiger Williams, and, and other guys. Wow, wow. Let me ask you this. Did you, at that point or any point after that, feel that you wanted to be traded? Well, I did. After, uh, you know, they, they actually, um, after Imlach, Punch Imlach had his heart attack and couldn't, uh, you know, come back and be the general manager, they switched GMs, and Harold asked me to wear the C again, and, and which I did. But uh, what had happened was hockey wasn't fun for me anymore, and... Uh, I knew the Philadelphia Flyers and some other teams were interested in me, and I was ready to, to have a change uh, of, 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 of scenery, so to speak, for my wife and my kids. It was very difficult for them. When I was going through that stuff with Imlac, the media would stalk my house. They would sit out in the, uh, you know, out in the street with their cameras. My kids would you know, get ready to go to school with my, my in-laws taking them. You know, all those sorts of things were going on. So the time that I... Uh, release the leaves of my no trade contract i think they were ready and i was ready for a change at that point and and i you know i never looked back on it i I enjoyed my years in philadelphia and then i retired my last year in detroit but hey would i've loved to have been a leaf my whole career yeah the circumstances didn't allow it and so i moved on 
But quite frankly, the majority of your career was spent as a Leaf. 844 games for the Leafs over 12 years. You recorded 389 goals and 916 points. You wrapped up your career as the Leafs' all-time leader in goals and points. That's pretty phenomenal. Well, you know, I was fortunate to to play, I think, 11 and a half seasons. I had some great teammates, great linemates, and Lanny McDonald. Boreas Salming was always an all-star type of player, Errol Thompson. Ian Turnbull, we had a good goalie in Mike Palmentier. But that team of the of the 70s, uh, late 70s, when we knocked out the Islanders, we were a team with great character. And uh, I think the fans uh, grew to like us. They got attached to us emotionally because of the type of players we have, guys like Tiger Williams also. And uh, and uh, we're, we're all still pretty close today. We didn't win the Cup. We lost uh, to a tough Montreal Canadiens team uh, the one year they went on. They won four Stanley Cups. But... But we still had a, a pretty good group of guys. And what happened was after um, we knocked out the Islanders and they hired Punch Imlock, he traded 11 players off that team. So a lot of the character and a lot of good talent. Guys like Lanny. Who'd ever think a guy like Lanny McDonald would be traded? But for Lanny's sake, it turned out good. He got a Stanley Cup. He played a 1,000 game, got 1,000 points and 500 goals. So I was happy for Lanny. It's his career. Uh, but we all would have loved to stay in Toronto and been leased for a whole career. I mean, we all love the lease. We sure do. And I am certainly one of the many, many fans. And, and I spent a lot of time uh, sitting at Maple Leaf Gardens cheering you and the team on. That was my my decade, the 70s as well. So, Daryl, you've been described as a man of great character. I'd like to chime in and say that you have true grit. Where did that come from? You are a man who is respected, but you also speak and, and act respectfully. You work hard. You stay strong. You are a, a devoted person to charities and, and to nonprofits and supporting others. You are a great family man. Where did all of that come from in the confusion of, of being a superstar in the 70s and, and early 80s? Well, I grew up in a small town, a Mennonite community in St. Jacobs, just outside of Kitchener, and we had a large family. My my dad's dad, my grandpa Jake Sittler, he had 12 kids, and he was my minor hockey coach, and he was the milkman in town, and, and had lots of uncles and aunts and cousins, and and uh, then I, there were eight kids in my immediate family. So we grew up, uh, my parents uh instilling to us the importance of hard work, uh, the importance of being a part of the community. Uh, my dad was the president of the Lions Club, got involved with minor hockey, and if we wanted something, we had to go out and earn it. <clears throat> and I remember my mom, when we had the summer job, cutting grass or, you know, blowing snow or shoveling snow in the, the wintertime, that for every dollar we made, we had to give 15% or 15 cents back to the household. And I thought that was unfair at the time, but when I looked later on in my life, it was a it was a lesson of uh, of discipline and understanding that we all had to contribute to make things uh, work out. My dad was a guy that worked from paycheck to paycheck, and my mom was a mom was a stay at home mom raising eight kids, and they didn't have pampers and stuff down back then. They they had to wash the diapers and they had to do everything else by hand. So I learned a lot from just watching them and 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 and, and around them. When I got to the Leafs in '70, <clears throat> I. Uh, I realized there was an opportunity here to, to to give back and make a difference. And one story that I'll always remember, when I was a seven-year-old boy, my dad took me to a Leaf uh, or a Chicago Ranger game in Kitchener, an exhibition game. 
It was a cold school night. Uh, I was waiting outside after the game with my dad and my brother, hoping to get an autograph. And what happened, all these different players filed by me. They didn't stop and sign my uh, my paper, and I was disappointed. But then finally two guys stopped. Andy Bathgate, who was the captain of the Rangers, and Bobby Hall, who was the star of the Chicago Blackhawks. And I always remember that moment as a seven-year-old to think, hey, first impressions are lasting in all of our lives. First impression could be good, could be bad, or could be indifferent. And we all have the opportunity at times to have a first impression. So when I made the Maple Leafs and with a player there and then the captain, I always reflected back to my feelings that day when both of those guys stopped but also my feelings when the guys went by me and didn't acknowledge me. So to me, that was an important thing. Um, and then there's always this opportunity to visit sick kids hospital of making a difference. And you can score all the goals you want in the world and, and, and have the accolades, but I think the journey along the way in any of our lives is so important. And we all have a choice when we get up that day and how we're going to live it. And, and I've always believed that you try to make a difference. You, 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 even though you're going through some tough times and challenges, you can you can you can control and adjust your attitude and how you're going to go about those sorts of things and be positive. So that's always what I've tried to do. Um, I'm here in my office today and 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 and, and, and talking. Um, Terry Fox photos behind me. Well, Terry mm-hmm. Fox, I was his idol as a kid growing up, and when he was running across Canada, I thought, gee, this guy's got a lot of guts and courage. He's lost his leg to cancer. He's making a difference in all of our lives. So I had the opportunity to meet Terry Fox when he was going through Ontario. He, he asked uh, the Cancer Society if he could meet me because he wanted it. And I ran with Terry Fox on University Avenue. And I always remember that moment of meeting him, but more importantly, knowing Terry Fox as a person. And what sticks out most about him for me is his humility. He wasn't doing this for himself. He was doing this to try to make a difference. And he did it in a, in a, humble, uh, in a humble way. And to me... Those traits and characteristics of him have, you know, washed off on me, so to speak, and I try to do that with other people. And to me, that's that's important. Lead your life with an example, so other people can follow. You know, I, I'm so awestruck by your honesty and your humility and your courage. If you are comfortable, when you lost. Wendy, your wife, to colon cancer in 2001, where did you go? Where did you go to find the courage and the strength that you needed to go on without her and also continue to raise your family? Well, Wendy was an important part of all of our lives. Uh, We were married 30 years. I met her in junior hockey. We got married at a young age, had three children. And while I was doing my busy thing with the Leafs and being the, uh, the uh, captain and, and, and being out in the community, she was at home making sure the kids were stable and getting the things done that, and giving the kids the love and attention that they needed. When uh, when Wendy uh, was diagnosed with colon cancer, um, um, we realized and found out at the time that colon cancer was the number two killer of cancers in both men and women, yet it was 90% preventable if early detection. So both Wendy and I got involved in an awareness program, and I remember at the press conference, um, Wendy didn't like the camera and the lights, but after I finished speaking, she got in front of the cameras and the microphone, and she said if she could make a difference in one person's life that wouldn't have to be going through what she was going through, and she was being treated for chemo at the time, then this thing would be all worth it. And I'll always remember that, so when I get on a a program like this or, or get an opportunity to speak to groups of people, I bring up Wendy's uh, journey with colon cancer 
so that some listener out there might say, hey, listen, maybe I should get tested. Maybe it's time in my life. And, uh, and in, in doing so, you can make a difference. And I found through my actions and words, I've got letters and people coming back to me saying, listen, Daryl, I've heard it. I went and got tested. I had stage 2 colon cancer. You saved my life. Those sorts of things happening. So that still to this day encourages me and gives me the satisfaction and the drive to keep talking about Wendy so that we can make a difference in, in other people's lives. As far as, uh, as far as, uh, you know, moving on after she passed away, it was a very difficult time, but I remember speaking and talking at her funeral, and I believe it's so true. Um, your, your family, your friends, and your faith get you through anything in life, and uh, I was fortunate to have all three of those, and I still have that today, and, and to me, that gives me the strength uh, every day, and, and the, the joy to, to, to get up every day and enjoy your family and your friends and all those other things around you. So, uh, again, I'm I'm a fortunate guy. Daryl Sittler, you've always been my hockey hero. You are now my human hero. Thank you so (laughs) much for joining us in conversation. Well, you're you're welcome. I appreciate uh, your comments and I appreciate the time to share with you. And we got lots to look forward to ahead of us, all of us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Ah, Daryl Sittler, a man with true grit and strong values. He loved hockey, gave it his all, and is grateful for what it has given him in return. And Michael Clemens, P for pinball, P for positivity, his two fundamental principles during this pandemic, over-communicate and don't try to do this alone. I'm Ann Romer. Bye for now. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.